Welcome to the 2000-2001 Maternity Lectures. These Giles Kirk Lectures by Dr. George Grant are given live at the Franklin Classical School in Franklin, Tennessee. We now join Dr. Grant in a lecture titled Darwinism and Scientism. Here is Dr. Grant. All right, this morning our discussion picks up where we left off last time with the ideology of nationalism, the development of a kind of new world order following the revolutions of 1848. We kind of pick up the thread of the worldview, the thread of the thinking the patterns of thought that ultimately reshaped the world and created what we know of as as the modern age. Today we'll discuss primarily the fundamental ultimate concern of moderns. The ultimate concern in the realm of of philosophy. In other words, the thing that most people really put their trust in. A new religion arose during the modern era that, that paralleled the rise of science and technology as, as legitimate professions apart from the trades. You have to remember that there's always been science and there's always been technology. There have always been great advances forged by, by humans in the areas of, of uh, refining tools and providing uh, new and provocative and more efficient ways to communicate and to build and to, um, to explore. But during the modern age, parallel with science and technology came a new belief system that uh, philosophers have since begun to call scientism. Now, it's really important that as we uh, look at, at scientism that we understand that oftentimes an inordinate belief in the power of science and scientists apart from any other thing can often lead to bad science. You need to understand that scientism and science are not necessarily close friends. As we'll see a little bit later, a blind belief in science and scientists can lead the human race way down the wrong road. As we'll see with the rise of the pseudosciences, uh, both today and on Thursday in our lectures. When, uh, when you see a really bad science fiction B-grade movie from the 1950s or 60s uh, on uh, Saturday afternoon television, a lot of times you're seeing the vision of what might have been the results of science and technology if scientism had had its way. But we don't live in a world that looks anything like that. 
We'll talk about that a bit on Thursday. Today we really want to discuss the roots of this new faith. And you remember that one of the things that the Enlightenment did was that it undermined the old philosophical, ethical, and moral foundations of Christendom. It created a, a great deal of doubt about what was true or even what could be known as Descartes and the others began to lead people's thinking in a whole new direction. Well, the problem is, is that human beings abhor, just like uh, science itself, just like the material world itself, we abhor a vacuum. And if God and the verities of the scriptures and all the things that we've known um, were the means by which we were to interpret our world, if those things are taken away from us, then we have to have something new put in its place. And one of the things that occurred very quickly after the Enlightenment was this kind of raw, blind belief that man, with his unaided rational faculties, could arrive at fundamental truth. And that science and technology and um, all of its related trades would be the means by which uh, truth would be discovered. Societies would be reshaped. Human beings would find ultimate happiness. And therefore, scientists quickly became the new high priests of this new religion, scientism. So scientism is essentially the blind belief in the ability of man to arrive at truth usually through science or technology. Now the problem with that, of course, is that all of the great advances in science up to the time of the revolution of 1848 and the Enlightenment and these changing, shifting worldview patterns, all of the great advances had come because men were certain that the world could be understood because the world was created by a rational God, a God who did things in an orderly fashion and who revealed himself and the character of his creation to human beings. With the Enlightenment, that assurance is dashed, and now man is alone in the universe but there is no revealing God. There is no creative order. Instead, man must discover the rules, discover the theorems, ascertain the verities. And that's man's only hope. So science becomes not only the means by which man will achieve his end, science is actually the Savior, the Messiah. And man, in his role as the high priest of this new religion, is the mediator between science and the world. This vision was summed up by one of the earliest prophets of scientism, 
a man by the name of Erasmus Darwin, who was in fact not a scientist. In fact, what you'll discover is that every single one of the, the exemplars of the pseudosciences and every single one of the heroes of scientism received their training first in some other field. None of them were technically trained as scientists. But they came to believe in science as, as their ultimate hope. So Erasmus Darwin, who was not trained as a scientist, but rather as a poet, wrote these lines. And these lines, we might say, are the manifesto of scientism. No gods. No masters. For science is now our decree. Just facts. Just factors. In the triumph of truth, we're free. Our Savior, our Deliverer, a priest in white robes, the scientist, the expert, in them lie our grandest hopes. It's a vision of the scientist with his lab coat forging this remarkable symbiosis between his raw rational faculties and the unformed world to create a perfect creation. Thus begins scientism. Darwin, born in 1731, died in 1802, was a British physiologist and, and poet. He was born in Nottinghamshire in England, and he was educated at the universities of Cambridge and Edinburgh. He was, um, he was a writer and a journalist who later drifted into the practice of medicine after becoming interested in the subject and treating his neighbors rather successfully with tonics and uh, uh, various elix elixirs of his own creation. Of course, his, his primary work was as a writer, and uh, his chief poetic work was something called the Botanic Garden, a rather long, uh, very stilted poem. Uh, in, in fact, it's, it's widely considered to be bad poetry. In fact, these lines that I just read you, no gods, no masters, for science is now our decree, just facts, just factors, in the temple of truth we're free. Uh, that's, uh, th that's an example of the bad poetry in, in this longer uh, rather stilted work. Nevertheless, because of its subject matter, because it was so radical, because it was so forthright in saying, uh, God in his heaven are uh, no longer an issue for us. Those of us who have rational faculties do not even to, need to consider fairy tales anymore. Instead, just give us the facts. We, we want to know the facts. And who will give us the facts? Why, as he says, our Savior, our Deliverer, a priest in white robes, uh, the scientist, the expert, in them lie our grandest hopes. Bad poetry, but pioneering philosophy. This, uh, this poem, The Botanic Garden, uh, published in three volumes originally, uh, gained renown for its enthusiasm for, for science and nature.
He also wrote a prose work, also rather stilted, almost unreadable. Those of you who think that the antiquary is unreadable, that you've discovered that it's difficult to plow through unless unless you get the hang of this Scots brogue. Well, let me tell you, there's no getting the hang of this work. It's, uh, it's called Zoonomia. And it anticipated some of the evolutionary theories of this, uh, the French naturalist Jean-Baptiste Lamarck. And, of course, his famous grandsons, Charles Darwin and Francis Galton. But he arrived at these theories in an entirely unscientific and intuitive fashion. The, the logic of Zoonomia is simply this. If we begin with the notion that there is no God... In other words, if that's our premise, if, if that's our presupposition, then how do we account for the world? Well, we've got to come up with, with some notion that can provide a, a, a process, an observable, knowable, testable, scientific process that, that explains the variety of creation that we see. And so he posited in this long prose work, the idea, based on no scientific experimentation, based upon no uh, demonstrable, uh, testable hypothesis, he just uh, throws out the idea that perhaps there is a natural selective process in the realm of creation. Darwin, as I've said, was the grandfather of the British uh, pseudo-scientists Charles Darwin and Francis Galton. And so he was in many ways the father of scientism, both for his manifesto uh, written in the Botanic Garden and also in his pioneering uh, work in the development of the idea of natural selection in Zoonomia. He was followed on the scene by the publication of the works of, in English of uh, Georges Buffon, who had actually lived uh, just uh, uh, slightly earlier than uh, Darwin. He was a French naturalist, the author of one of the earliest accounts of the global history of biology and geology, not based on the Bible. In fact altogether discrediting and dismissing the Bible. He was an aristocrat, studied law, and only later gradually became interested in um, medicine and botany and mathematics. Nevertheless, he was admitted to the, uh, the Royal Academy of Sciences in France, the, uh, the Académie Royale des Sciences, in 1734. And uh, he was appointed... The, uh, the attendant of the royal gardens, the intendant at the Jardin du Roi. Uh, from then on, Buffon uh, divided his time uh, administering his, his family lands, remember he was an aristocrat, and building the collections in the garden. Gardens 
of the French king served as a combination of botanical garden, uh, zoo, and uh, laboratory for the development of, of uh, new flowers and, uh, and uh, new uh, uh, grape uh, varieties and so forth. His uh, major work, which was uh, published after his death in English, was a 36-volume book uh, called Natural History, Histoire Naturelle. Uh, it was uh, published in French between 1749 and 1789, but it really didn't gain renown until it was published in, uh, in English in 1804. In it, he provided the very first naturalistic account of the history of the earth. Using the ideas of natural forces uh, from Erasmus Darwin and Enlightenment reason from Descartes, Buffon uh, used only empirical causes to explain natural phenomena. In other words, he began with the idea that the world was not created. The world happened somehow. It either happened by accident or there was uh, some designing feature deep down in the primordial cells of the cosmos. He never tried to explain where those primordial cells came from. Uh, nevertheless, he believed that everything could be explained entirely through the process of rational inquiry. Despite the fact that he had done none of that rational inquiry other than his work in the garden, he postulated a comprehensive uh, history of the natural world. 36 volumes of it. He was, again, not really a scientist. He, he was a lawyer. And uh, you read the, the, the natural history of Buffon and it, and it reads like a legal case. And he argues it like a legal case. Nevertheless, Buffon's works became uh, the best known literary work from the entire age of the Enlightenment for more than a hundred years. Jean-Baptiste Lamarck, born in 1744, died in 1829, was also a Frenchman, a botanist, an in, um, invertebrate uh, zoologist, who formulated one of the earliest theories of evolution. He began a classical education, but when his father died, he was forced to enter the military. He never uh, completed any of his academic work, but he gradually became interested in science uh, due to the uh, remarkable success that he observed in artillery officers in determining the trajectory of cannonades. He struck up a friendship later after his military service with Buffon and uh, as a result was elected to the Academy of Sciences. He became Buffon's associate botanist just five years before Buffon died. Um, but uh, but he, his most significant work was done when he began to work at the Jardin du Roi in uh, 1788, the year that Buffon died. His uh, theoretical observations 
on evolution, which he referred to as transformationism or transmutation, were based on his view that all living things were arranged in one continuous scala naturae. In other words, on a scale of being. He discovered the idea of the scale of being or the chain of being in uh, Greek philosophy. The Greek philosophy basically said that, uh, that, that everything in the cosmos is arranged along an ascending and descending scale of, of development. And so at the top of, of this, this massive chain or scale of being are, of course, men. And at the bottom are, are vermin. And just above vermin are women. And then come dogs. And then come pigs. And so on. All the way through the whole scale of being. Which measures the importance, the development, and, and the wisdom of, uh, of each of these items along this scale of being. He got this idea from the ancient Greeks, who, so of course, did not postulate this from, from science. If they had postulated it from science, then uh, their wives would have told them to adjust their scales a little bit. Uh, rather, it was based upon certain philosophical assumptions. Now, Lamarck did not go so far as to adopt a... Um, a pre-Platonic chain of being. Rather, he, he said, we'll take that principle and we'll apply it to the, the remarkable diversity of creation as we see it. And, and we'll posit a kind of developmental scale of ascending complexity. And the assumption was... Uh, for him, that the more primitive life forms were the foundational life forms. And all complex life forms actually somehow, some way, emanate from those more primitive life forms. So the higher you get on the scale, perhaps the longer amount of time was required uh, by natural forces to create that complex life form. And the lower... Uh, perhaps the older the life form actually is. So it's a kind of primordial a form of, of evolution. His, um, his ideas were initially presented in his major theological work uh, called uh, the Philosophie uh, Zoologique. And uh, he argued that, in that work, that evolution was actually controlled by three biological laws. First, environmental influence on organ development. Second, change in body structure based on use and disuse of parts. And third, the inheritance of acquired characteristics. So in other words, he's saying that, that 
there are certain environmental pressures that create changes in organisms and these mutations or changes in the organisms can actually be passed from one generation to the next. His ideas were not seriously entertained during his lifetime. And his ideas, while based on certain observations in the garden, uh, among vertebrates and invertebrates, were not based actually on what we today would call scientific experimentation. He did not come up with a hypothesis. He did not test his hypothesis. He did not observe the results of that testing, that, that experiment. He did not repeat the test. He did not codify the results of that test and then confirm uh, the results, verifying the results of that test with... Uh, other independent tests. In other words, he didn't follow the scientific method. What, what he did do was he observed very carefully the relations between complex life forms, between the different varieties of flowers in his uh, garden. Charles Lyell or as the Scots call him, Charles Liel born in 1797, died in 1875, was a Scottish geologist whose writing strongly influenced the development of modern geology. He was educated at the University of Oxford and studied law. He was admitted to the bar, but afterward uh, rarely practiced law due to uh, independent wealth and devoted himself almost entirely to tinkering with gadgets, uh, uh, going out into the fields and observing rock formations. He, he devoted himself to science, and particularly geology. Building on the pioneering work of the 18th century Scottish geologist James Hutton, Liel, or, or Lyle, developed the theory, theory of uniformitarianism. This theory says that natural processes that change the earth in the present have operated in the past at the same gradual rate. Now this idea contradicted the very common theory of catastrophism, which was popular among scientists of Lyle's time. Catastrophism said that only major catastrophes could dramatically change the basic formation of the earth, and that the earth was only, uh, therefore, about 6,000 years old, consistent with the supposed sequence of events described in the Bible. Lyle said, no, 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 no. We're not going to suppose that there might have been, say, a flood in the time of Noah. That's not a particularly rational explanation for mountain ranges and canyons and, and uh, uh, geological layering. Rather, what we ought to do is we ought to observe the geological processes that we can in, a, say, a span of time. Let, let's observe what happens 
in erosion on a mountainside over the course of two years. Let's measure that erosion. Let's observe the processes. And then let's suppose that those same processes have been at work for thousands of years, perhaps tens of thousands of years, perhaps even millions of years. By observing what we see right now, right before us, and then just kind of projecting back very, very far, we can explain, he said, everything that we see on the planet. All we have to do is look at what we see now and back up a lot. And back up farther than we can even imagine. That's uniformitarianism. Everything happens in a uniform fashion, in uniform ways. Catastrophism says things can be plugging along quite nicely, thank you very much, and then all of a sudden a hurricane comes along and takes the beach away. And takes the houses away that were on the beach. And that's not necessarily explainable in a nice breezy summer afternoon. So you can't figure out why beaches look the way they do without taking into account both nice breezy summer afternoons and hurricanes. The uniformitarians say we can predict the sequence of hurricanes and the changes that they will uh, bring because they have a rather uniform rate. And so we can factor in the small catastrophes. But what we won't factor in are huge catastrophes. Meteors from the planet Zargon. We're not going to take into account um, landings of, of little green Martians. And we're not going to take into account all of those silly myths like Noah and his ark either. We'll assign Noah and his ark to Elvis sightings, Beatles reunions, and a clean administration in Washington. All myths, every one. Silliness. So uniformitarianism uh, posits that that man can observe these processes, can measure these processes, can project these processes both backwards and forwards. The, uh, the work of Lyle's theories ultimately influenced his uh, close friends, Alfred Wallace, Charles Darwin, and Thomas Galton. Alfred Wallace was a British naturalist, actually a collector of wildlife specimens, and in his later life, an author who was one of the first to formulate the groundbreaking theory of evolution by natural selection in more scientific terms. You remember that Darwin, Buffon, and Lamarck had made those observations, but uh, had not made those observations on anything more than observation and intuition. Alfred Wallace attempted to uh, bring those theories more into the realm of, of genuine science. Wallace received his only formal education in a one-room grammar school and was forced to leave school at the age of 13. 
1849, he set off on an expedition to the Amazon River, convinced that he could make a living collecting exotic specimens of wildlife for museums and universities, uh, which he was phenomenally successful in doing. He had a knack for finding the oddest critters, creatures, flora, and fauna, bringing those back to the, to the amazed gasps of museum curators uh, throughout the West. And uh, he became, in a sense, uh, an Indiana Jones kind of, of character, out not looking for archaeological specimens, but rather botanical and zoological specimens. He, uh, he set out again on another major expedition in 1854, uh, it was a, an eight-year-long trip to what was then known as the Malay Archipelago, uh, today known as Indonesia and Malaysia. While there, Wallace began to formulate his theory of natural selection, the idea that, that competition for survival in any local environment exerts pressure on the, on the populations of both flora and fauna uh, to adapt. In effect, what happens is that nature selects the individuals with the best combinations of traits for survival. Survival of the fittest. In 1858, while still on his Malaysian journey, Wallace wrote a remarkable paper, very short paper, but a remarkable paper, describing his theory, and he sent it to, to, his, um, to his friend, Charles Darwin. Uh, Wallace was unaware that Darwin had been developing a similar theory for nearly two decades. Darwin was astonished to see that someone else had arrived at the same conclusion and quickly arranged to have Wallace's paper, as well as several of his own unpublished works, read at a scientific meeting in London. Darwin was prompted by this and by the astonishment of the scientific community following the reading of Wallace's and his papers uh, that he, he quickly rushed into publication the work that he had been uh, tinkering with for most of the previous two decades. His plan was was actually not to publish the work until his death. Uh, but uh, now that the cat was out of the bag, now that Wallace was now sending uh, papers to Lord who knows who, Darwin decided to publish. And thus came On the Origin of Species. As uh, Karl Barth said, the bomb that exploded on the playground of theologians. Francis Galton was uh, Charles Darwin's cousin, the grandson of Erasmus Darwin, uh, best known for his work in anthropology and heredity, and as the founder of eugenics. He was educated at King's College, London, and Trinity College, and later at the University of, uh, of Cambridge. He, uh, 
He, he served as a teacher there at Trinity College. He traveled in Africa in 1844 and 1850 and subsequently decided that um, his life's career would be as a travel writer. And so he wrote such uh, enticing books as The Art of Travel for the British Citizen of the World. And it described what to take in your trunks uh, and uh, how many porters you would need uh, to cross things like uh, the Nile River at, uh, at the uh, First Rapids and so forth. He also wrote um, Narrative of an Explorer in Tropical South Africa. And uh, it, was, it was down that path that he uh, thought that he would pursue until he became very interested in weather patterns. His study of meteorology led him to write... Um, his, his uh, most famous work on weather, uh, Meteographica. It was the first book on modern methods of mapping weather patterns. He became interested in heredity and the measurement of, of humans. He began by uh, postulating that, that intelligence could be determined in human beings by the size of a person's nose and ears. And so he began a massive experiment of mapping noses and ears, hiring artists, uh, creating special instruments, including uh, a wax mold procedure, which apparently was quite uncomfortable. Hot wax up the nostrils is not exactly my idea of a fun afternoon. But he quickly moved beyond wax molds of nostrils to, um, to something rather more promising. And that was fingerprinting. It was Francis Galton who really uh, was able to demonstrate for the first time that every single human being has a unique fingerprint. He, uh, he also collected statistics on height and dimension, strength, other characteristics of large numbers of people, and categorized people by racial profiles. He demonstrated fundamental techniques in statistical measurement, uh, pioneered a lot of the important statistical uh, scientific standards that scientists use to this day. He codified his ideas about genetics and eugenics in his book, Hereditary Genius, which ultimately created the pseudoscience of, of eugenics. His cousin, Charles Darwin, was the man who ultimately laid the foundations of modern evolutionary theory and, in fact, uh, lent his name uh, to the whole field of Darwinism. It was his concept of the development of all forms of life through the slow-working processes of natural selection or the survival of the fittest. He was the fifth child of a wealthy and sophisticated English family. His uh, maternal grandfather was the successful China and pottery entrepreneur Josiah Wedgwood. 
His paternal grandfather was, of course, the well-known uh, uh, poet Erasmus Darwin. He went to the University of Edinburgh to study uh, medicine. But in 1827, he dropped out of medical school and entered the University of Cambridge in preparation to becoming a clergyman in the Church of England. He had a crisis of faith while reading some of the Enlightenment books assigned to him in the School of Divinity, and he dropped out of the Divinity program. And now, rootless and uncertain about what was true and, and what was not, the 22-year-old Darwin was uh, signed up by his family aboard the English survey ship, the HMS Beagle, as an unpaid naturalist on a scientific expedition around the world. Now, at that time, most geologists still adhered to the catastrophist theory in which species were individually created and immutable, that is, unchangeable, uh, apart from small mutations for all time. But aboard the Beagle, Darwin found himself fitting many of his observations into Charles Lyell's uh, general uniformitarian view. Lyell was someone he was introduced to while in divinity school. After returning to England in 1836, Darwin began recording his ideas about the changeability in species in his notebooks on the transmutation of species, the foundation upon which he would later build all of his uh, great work. Darwin's explanation for how species involve, uh, ultimately evolved was brought into sharp focus after he read an essay on the principle of population by the British economist Robert, Thomas Robert Malthus. Remember, Malthus was the, uh, the developer of uh, the Malthusian theories that said that population always increases exponentially, but food resources and uh, the, the natural resources needed to maintain populations only increase arithmetically. And so Malthus said, we're, we're headed in the 18th century and the early 19th century toward a terrible, terrible population crisis. The world was, was overcrowded. And, and ultimately, mass starvation was going to sweep across the globe unless we took extreme measures to limit populations. And so remember the, the passage that I read about, uh, from, from this book that was influential in Darwin's thinking um, uh, about the necessity to, uh, to not have clean uh, sources of water, to not have appropriate sewage, uh, to make sure that the inner cities were more crowded and more polluted so that those people would die off. Well, Darwin reads this book and he's, he's astonished. Uh, sources of water, to not have appropriate sewage, uh, to make sure that the inner cities were more crowded and more polluted so that those people would die off. 
Darwin reads this book and he's, he's astonished. The availability of food for basic human survival would not match the geometric rate of population growth. He was certain. The latter, therefore, had to be checked by some sort of natural limitations, such as famine or disease, or by social actions, such as war or uh, extermination. This, this process that uh, Malthus described was the beginning for Darwin of the understanding of natural selection or the survival of the fittest. Darwin applied Malthus' argument to, uh, to animals and plants, and by 1838, he had arrived at a sketch of a theory of evolution through natural selection. Because Darwin was independently wealthy, and never had to earn an income, for the next two decades, he was able to work on this theory, write it up in his notebooks, refine it, uh, do experiments and, uh, and trips to observe uh, uh, various features of the natural world to see if they were in line with his work. Darwin's theory of evolution by natural selection ultimately became the idea that essentially because the food supply problem described by Malthus was so grave, the young born to any species needed to intensely compete for survival. The young that were able to survive would produce the next generation, and they would embody those favorable natural variations, however slight their advantages might be, and these variations were passed on through heredity. In other words, the weaker of any species will ultimately die off. The stronger will survive and they will pass their genetic strengths on to the next generation. Therefore, the survival of the fittest not only means that the fit will survive in any one generation, but they will make their progeny even more fit in the next generation. And this fitness um, elimination process uh, passed on through heredity will cause gradual transformation. In other words, each species will gradually get stronger and better throughout time. The weaker will just die off and they will be exterminated. Darwin believed, therefore, that, uh, that each generation actually improved adaptively over the preceding generations, and this gradual and continuous process is the source of all of the evolution of all species. In 1859, he published his work on, uh, as On the Origin of Species, and the reaction to the origin was immediate. A new era in uh, the scientific world had begun. The reaction that was immediate and profound 
created a whole series of new schools of thought about the way the world worked. Obviously, there was uh, Darwinism, which we'll talk about in more detail next time. Remember, the discussion here is not so much Darwinism, the development of scientism, an alternate worldview. Uh, But Darwinism argues that uh, essentially all species evolve from lesser to greater complexity. There are a number of people who immediately latched on to the idea of Darwinism. Thomas Huxley was one. He was a, a physician, a member of a very prominent family of writers, aristocrats, legislators. He was a, an incredibly articulate man. He lost his faith while in military service. And um, when presented with the ideas of his friend's um, natural selection processes and the whole concept of evolution, he dedicated the rest of his life to spreading the ideas, the ideas of evolution. He became, in a sense, the first apostle of, of Darwinism. And he was an incredibly articulate, incredibly brilliant orator. It was, uh, it was often said that, that audience would, audiences would sit on the edges of their seats. He was like an evangelist. And he wooed people and wowed people with the notion that, that man had arrived finally in its long history where he was no longer dependent, as Erasmus Darwin had stated earlier in his famous poem, no longer dependent upon gods and masters. For science is now our decree. The temple of truth has finally had its doors swung open, and now we are free. It's important to realize that virtually all of the serious Darwinian scientists came in the generation after Darwin. Those who attempted to work out the mechanics and the structure of Darwinian theory came, came afterward and were, were more than likely one to the faith as a result of Thomas Huxley. Others immediately saw the implications of, of Darwinian theory and wrote profusely on the subject, lauding Darwin as a prophet of a new age, utilizing even Erasmus Darwin's uh, language uh, about his grandson, our Savior, our Deliverer, a priest, the scientist, the expert, in whom lie all our uh, grandest hopes, was Karl Marx. Karl Marx wrote glowingly in his uh, columns for uh, the New York Press, that uh, Darwin's theories would ultimately herald a new world order. And of course, Frederick Engels, who was often the ghost writer for Karl Marx, who could, uh, it seems, never uh, complete a work uh, by deadline, uh, was also an enthusiastic supporter. But of course, again, these are not scientists. Real Darwinian thought, the kind of thing that you might read in a biological textbook or a geological textbook uh, today, uh, does not come 
for seriously for another generation or two. What comes almost immediately from Darwin is a social theory, which is what you would expect from a, a worldview shift. We have to remember that, that scientism is a worldview. It has presuppositions that come before the evidence. The evidence is accumulated in order to support the presuppositions. And so beginning with those presuppositions, a whole group of thinkers began to posit something called social Darwinism. Social Darwinism essentially says that just as in the biological world we see survival of the fittest, so also among men and nations we will see a social action predicated on the idea of survival of the fittest. It becomes a justification for uh, various economic theories or political theories. Why are the powerful powerful? Because they're the fittest. Why are the rich rich? Because they're the fittest. And because this is the law of the universe, and there are no gods, and there are no masters, then might makes right. It is the destiny of the elite. It is the destiny of the powerful. It is the destiny of the rich to rule the world as the philosopher kings. This is the idea that, that lay behind the philosophies of people like William Seward and uh, Woodrow Wilson and John D. Rockefeller. They believed that they were chosen by God, not a God in the heavens, but, but the God of science, the God of natural processes the God of, of survival of the fittest. Now, you start to apply social Darwinism uh, across the board and you start to see some rather frightening notions here. It becomes a justification for tyranny, doesn't it? If a majority population enjoys a tremendous advantages, material, intellectual, access to the corridors of culture and power over a minority, you might suppose, in accordance with social Darwinism, that it's supposed to be that way. Therefore, there are some naturally inferior classes in the world. Now, if there are uh, resident prejudices then those resident prejudices would utilize social Darwinism as not just an excuse, not just a justification, but a mandate for prejudice and discrimination. Because some people are more fit than others in accordance with natural selection. It doesn't, it doesn't have anything to do with science. This is experience. Uh, extrapolating from the premises this philosophy of scientism. As a result, there were all kinds of, of laws that were put into place on the basis of social Darwinian theory to hold the inferior classes down and to elevate the superior classes. Malthusianism 
is given a new shot in the arm by Darwinism. Malthusianism uh, argues, of course, that population grows exponentially, food only arithmetically. Well, well, this brings up the whole idea of the exhaustion of natural resources on the face of the earth and therefore the necessity of the elites, those who stand at the top end of the scale of being, to, uh, to protect those resources for them and their progeny. And thus we, we, we see the development of radical environmental thought. We see the development of, of radical uh, social Darwinian theory applied to the structure of, of economic distribution of resources, the development of, of technologies, the application of technologies, the limitation of, of commerce in certain arenas. This also gives rise uh, to Thomas Galton's uh, hobby horse, uh, Francis Galton's hobby horse, uh, eugenics. Eugenics argues that because man is the great arbiter, the mediator uh, between the mechanisms of technology and the created world, it is actually possible for man to engineer evolution. Man can steer it. I mean, there is no God. There are no masters. Science is now our decree. Just facts. Just factors. In the temple of truth, we're free. Therefore, we can actually become the masters of evolution. Evolution is just an engine. It's just a mechanical process. But man has the ability to steer that mechanical process. We can advance evolution in a more rational fashion. We don't have to be left to the arbitrary whims of natural forces. We can harness those natural forces. And we can make them go where we want them to go. Essentially what eugenics said is that um, there is this massive gene pool in the human race. Scientists can identify which of those gene pools are weak and which are strong. Thus, identifying those factors that uh, play into the idea of survival of the fittest. And what we do is we identify those factors and then we, we limit the procreation of the less fit members of the human race and we encourage the procreation of the more fit. This is where the racial theories of Adolf Hitler and Margaret Sanger and Lothrop Stoddard came from. This is not redneck racism. This is a kind of scientific racism that says that there are, there are certain, certain categories of people who are carriers of bad genes. And we can determine just exactly what the good genes are by racial and genetic profiling. 
As a result, people like Lothrop Stoddard, a Harvard University professor and the chair of eugenics studies at Harvard, wrote a brilliant book entitled The Rising Tide of Color Against White World Supremacy. And in it, he essentially said that if human civilization were to survive, it is going to become necessary to inhibit what he called the growth of human weeds. He argued that it may become necessary to issue every single person on the planet a license, a license to procreate. In other words, some people will be allowed to have children and some people will not. And they'll come and examine you and decide whether or not you look like you're a prime candidate to have children based upon these external features evaluated. Now let me ask you, if, if we were just kind of voting as, as the elite, are we going to allow this to have children? Do we want more of this? Well, what about this? Are we going to allow this to have children? How will we decide? Shall we take wax molds of her nose? Shall we examine her test grades? How did you do today on your test? Aha! Shall, shall we just take an average? What about this? You think Chris should be allowed to have children? Chris, stand up. Let's take a good look. Up on the chair. Up on the chair. Take a turn. Take a turn. Now, what do you think? What, what are our criteria? How do we decide? Well, according to eugenics, there were certain profiles that, that you could evaluate people on. Profiles like IQ tests. Are IQ tests always accurate? Have you ever taken a test where you know all of the stuff and you do really badly on it? Yeah. Is this a common experience for many of you? You study hard, you know the stuff, but you study all the wrong stuff. Or, you get in here and your head is about to explode with facts and figures and names and, and you see all of these index cards flashing before your eyes and you start to answer and you just kind of go... Well, according to eugenics, we can actually decide who is and who is not fit based upon a, a series of external measurements. Then we issue licenses. Do you know that 32 states in the United States 
in the last century, the 20th century, actually had eugenics laws on the books. They said that uh, if you have a history of mental illness in your family, if you have a history of dementia in your family, if, if crime runs in your family, if you come from a broken home, if you don't have the right genetic characteristics, that you could actually be sterilized by law. Horror stories abound because of this pseudoscience called eugenics. During the great war on poverty launched by President Johnson in 1964, there were certain standards that were put into place concerning the reimbursement of medical doctors on sterilization techniques. It seems that um, under the eugenics laws of by that time, there were only 28 states, but according to the, genetics law, uh, the eugenics laws of 28 states, uh, doctors could be reimbursed by the federal government for sterilization procedures. The problem was is that a simple tubal ligation, which is a simple snipping of, of a tube, uh, that provided the doctor with about $200 of reimbursement. But a full hysterectomy, the removal of the reproductive organs, a major surgical procedure in a woman, um, that could provide the doctor with $800 reimbursement from the federal government. Guess which one doctors used when they were told by the courts to provide this service to the state? As a result, during the 1960s, there were tens of thousands of what were called Mississippi appendectomies done in the Deep South. Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia. In other words, 17, 18-year-old girls were ordered by the courts to go and have major surgery done. And they could never have children for the rest of their lives. That's eugenics. Recapitulationism. Recapitulationism argues that the entire evolutionary process is actually uh, portrayed in cell development. In other words... If you take a hamster cell early enough, and a human cell early enough, and a chimpanzee cell early enough in its embryonic development, they'll actually be the same. And they will pass through the same evolutionary process until the hamster stops being just that little evolutionary embryo and turns into a hamster. And in fact, to the naked eye, uh, even under a microscope, e even uh, in the earliest stages of embryonic development, you look at a hamster baby and you look at a human baby and they kind of look 
similar. In fact, I've been in hospitals before looking through the window at certain babies, and I think to myself, boy, I hope something happens quick so this one is not quite so ugly. It looks a little bit like a little red wrinkled hamster. Now, I'm not going to tell you which babies it was, but there have been a few in my time. And one time I was a pastor, I saw lots of babies through the windows, and I kept praying, oh, Lord Jesus, got to do something quick. Some hair, a nose that's not spread from here to here. Something, Lord Jesus, do something and heal that baby's face. One of the things that recapitulationism argued, therefore, was that essentially human beings are just hamsters a little farther along. Meaning that in the early stages of evolution, if you get rid of that little thing, it's like getting rid of a hamster. It's just a bunch of tissue. Therefore, an abortion is not murder. It's just the removal of tissue. Parapetic speciation is a more recent development of the theories of evolution espoused by such people as Carl Sagan, Paul Ehrlich, uh, Stephen Jay Gould. Essentially, what this says is, because science has never been able to verify the smooth, even transitions between any species, there's not a single evidence of a smooth transition between one species and another of any species, plant or animal, anywhere on the planet. In other words, there are no missing links. And no missing links have ever been discovered at any level of the evolutionary chain. So, what uh, parapetic speciation argues is that, that evolution doesn't occur in smooth, gradual, natural selection kinds of mutations, as Darwin argued. Rather, it, it occurs through a series of hiccups. Jumps and starts. You have a little horse, and all of a sudden, a little horse gives birth to a real big horse. And now you've got two different species, the little horse species and the big horse species. And, uh, and this occurs through various uh, observable, describable uh, hiccups in environmental structure or mutations of the, of the genetic structure. There may be a whole lot of different explanations, but essentially uh, evolution occurs through a series of jumps and starts. So there are no missing links because the transformation from one species to another occurs in a jolt, sudden start. So I don't have to look for these species anymore. We just see that somewhere along the, the line we stop seeing this kind of fossil and start seeing this kind of fossil. Therefore, what happened was is this kind of just boom became that. Now, the problem with all of these theories is that to one degree or another, all of them fail to follow the basic standards of the scientific method. There's never been a time when we've been able to repeat any of these transmutations. 
There's never been a time where we've been able to confirm our hypotheses. We have a lot of conflicting evidence, and to be sure, there is a lot of evidence out there that Darwinists base their worldview upon. But it's the gathering of evidence, it's the accumulation of observation, uh, the ability to observe results and then repeat the test and then verify through independent testing and, uh, and properly codify. That is just non-existent for any of these pseudosciences. The bottom line is that scientism is a faith. It's religion. Modern science, the gift of technology, is primarily the result of Christian thought. The idea that there is a rational God that He has given us the ability to observe and to observe rightly. That which is true reveals uh, both generally and specially that, that the world works in a predictable fashion. That the accumulated results of, of human civilization can provide a, a foundation for continued growth but also the recognition that we live in a fallen world and everything is not advancing. We live in a fallen world where death and decay are constant reminders of entropy and atrophy. And so, when we hear Erasmus Darwin issue his cry, no gods, no masters. For science is now our decree. Just facts, just factors. In the temple of truth we're free. Our Savior, our Deliverer, a priest in white robes, the scientist, the expert, in whom all our grand, uh, reside all our grandest hopes. When we hear that, we hear the same cry as the modern balladeer who in who in an agony of angst cries out, I'm not here. This is not happening. It's a faith. A faith of hope or a faith of despair. But a faith. This concludes this lecture by Dr. George Grant. If you'd like to know more about Dr. Grant, please visit his official website at kingsmeadow.com. That's kingsmeadow.com. Books, audio, and additional information can be found on his website. For additional Giles Kirk information, please go to gileskirk.com. For information on the Franklin Classical School in Franklin, Tennessee, go to franklinclassical.com. For Dr. Grant, Goodbye and God bless.